Hello and welcome to Autodidacts Anonymous. My name's Matt and I'm an autodidact. My name's Huddo and I too am an autodidact. Oh, you're getting better at saying that every I week, am, Huddo. I, I, I actually, You've been practising. I came across the word in a Dan Simmons foreword the other day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The word autodidact? Yes. Oh, yes so it does actually exist. I thought uh, it was just he was up. actually using it to refer to a young boy who was an autodidact and saying he built that character and someone he actually knew who was yep. an autodidact. When I think autodidact, the first person that comes to my mind is um, Philip Adams. Yes, yes. He's yeah. a great autodidact. Yes. He does all his reading by, he's, for years, he does all his reading because he lives in a farm uh, miles out of um, Sydney and it's a long drive. I didn't and, know. And he listens to audiobooks on the right. way to and from the um, ABC studio. Right. And that's why he knows so much. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I have a lot of time for Philip Adams, obviously. Yeah. So for non Australians out there, Philip Adams would be Australia's answer to Stephen Fry. Not not exactly the same, but kind of a national treasure that knows yes, a lot of stuff. Yes, um, and very much a um, uh, icon's not really the word I want, but uh, he's a legend. A, a legend and promoter of um, arts and left wing viewpoints. Oh yeah, he's a, he's a communist. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he's very into. Uh, like, so we, we have a festival of big ideas, you know, yes. that, and, and he's often chairing it yes. and so forth. So, yeah, there you go. There's a plug for Phil Adams. <laughs> but let's concentrate on what we need to concentrate on. Which closer is to home. the discovery of ignorance. Yeah, so that's chapter 14 of uh, Harari's book, Sapiens. And it's the beginning of the fourth section of the book, which is all about the scientific revolution, the third great revolution that's affected the course of history. Yes. Okay. So, to begin, if you fell asleep in 1000 AD and woke up in 1500 AD, you'd be fine. There'd be a few changes, but you'd wake up and you'd pretty much just pick up where you left off and you'd be able to function pretty well in that, in that community 500 years later. Yeah. But if you fell asleep in 1500 AD and woke up in 2000 AD, hello, you'd be in all sorts of strife. You're not wrong. <laughs> you wouldn't know what was going on. No. And you'd, you'd, you'd probably wonder whether you were even on earth like you'd be like what is going on and equally amazingly it would be a big difference whether you woke up in 1901 or 2000 just that hundred years oh you agree with that but even 1900 i mean the whole 500 years oh absolutely yeah you know been rapid change i mean you've got telegraphs and electricity and motor cars and all those sort of stuff yeah podcasts yeah steam engines Podcasts and steam engines. Podcast, That's what we should call our book. Podcasts in 1901 would have been a... <laughs> well, we didn't even have the wireless in 1901 as far as I can remember. Not that I was around. So, uh, to give you a bit of an idea of, of the growth and change that's happened in the last 500 years, in 1500 there were 500 million Homo sapiens on the planet. And today there are around 7.8 billion. That's right. Uh, so that's a 15-fold uh, increase. Uh, the total value of goods and services in the world in 1500 was $250 billion in today's money. Now, that's not what we produce per year. That was everything that existed. Yep. Uh, whereas today, we produce $60 trillion worth of goods and services every year. Every year, yes. And Nick Bostrom, uh, Professor Nick Bostrom of Oxford University, has a graph. He uses it when he's talking about things like the intelligence, singularity, etc. But he plots a graph of 
gross domestic product of the earth. Yeah. And it's a graph which is just a line along the bottom of the graph all yeah. the way up until yeah. this last century. Yeah. And then it's a vertical line yeah. straight up. It's like the COVID graph. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in 1500, humanity consumed around 13 trillion calories of energy per day. And today it is... 1,500 trillion calories a day. Yeah. So our population's increased 15-fold, but our production's increased 240-fold. Yep. And that's actually not even comparing apples and apples. No, <laughs> that's 240-fold every year. Yes. And energy consumption has increased 115-fold and rising. Yep. And uh, in terms of impact on ecology and stuff like that, this is the fundamental problem. Yep. Yep. So... The other fundamental problem is that since 1945, humans have had not the ability, not just the ability to change the course of history, but to end it entirely. <laughs> Absolutely right. In more than one way. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true too. Yeah, I was thinking like about, yeah, with the date of 1945, that was when they um, detonated the first yes. nuclear weapon. And, you know, that's certainly a quick way to end things. We, yeah, we could put the world into a huge nuclear winter. Um, but we're now getting to the stage where we could simply redesign the human genome and come up with something better. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, Harari talks about in Homo Deus. Have you read Homo Deus yet? I have not, but I'm starting to get insights into it. Okay. So the process that led to all this amazing, remarkable, rapid change is known as the scientific revolution. So before 1500, progress wasn't really a thing. And I think that's really interesting yes. because now we just assume progress is going to happen. Yes. Or is that such a, a modern thing to do? For, yes. For most of human history, you it, know, it nothing not, really changed. No, my father was a farmer and I'm a farmer and my son will be a yeah. farmer. That's, yeah, that's right. So the main aim was for most of history was to consolidate where we were. So if the king paid a, a, a wise man to give him some advice. It wouldn't be about improving society or making any progress. It would no. be about, well, let's, how do we keep what we've got? Yes, and uh, you know, how do we appease the gods? And Yes. Yeah. So in the last 500 years, humans have begun to believe that they can increase their capabilities beyond what we currently know. Yep. And, and that's by investing in scientific research. Yep. Um, and we all, we all think like that. I mean, that's just normal to think like that now. We do. And uh, in the next book we're tackling, The Ascent of Money, we will see how this is so absolutely fundamental yep. to why we've, we've now got the whole world in debt. Yeah, and he covers it pretty well from a satellite view in this yes. book as well. Yes. Um, so why did this happen? That's what this, the rest of this chapter and the next two or three chapters are, are all about. Yeah. So humans have always sought to... Un well, always... At least since the cognitive revolution, they've sought to under, understand the nature of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and we tried, always tried to discover the rules that govern the natural world. But modern science has taken it to another level. Indeed. And it's done that in three critical ways. So the first and probably foremost is science's willingness to admit ignorance. Yeah. So this is something that's often misstood about misunderstood about science. It's often considered to be the realm of certainty when, in fact, it's the realm of ignorance. Yes. And, and any scientist will, will admit that. Yes. Um, it assumes that we don't know everything. It also accepts that things we think we know could be wrong. Yes. Um, no idea is sacred. Indeed. Um, now, I've, I've understood those things about science, but it, 
I hadn't really grasped before what Harari emphasized here as the contrast mm. in way of thinking that, you know, up until then, we kind of had this idea that we knew everything. And the whole thing about science is the idea that there's more to know. Yeah. And, 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 it, and, and also, in a sense, we don't know much at all. Yes. A, a real humble humility to it. Yes, yes. Uh, the top scientists recognise that very well. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, just as a historian who knows more and more recognises he understands less and less yeah. about why. Um, same with most fields of expertise. The yeah. more you know... I define an expert as someone who knows how much they don't know yeah. about a given subject. Yeah, but that's probably not a bad definition either. So one of the second pillars of, of, of science in the modern world is the use of observation uh, or experiment and then using mathematics, mathematical tools, to tie that data together to make um, cohesive um, theories about reality. Yes. Um, and the third... Third and foremost, they're all important. Acquisition of new powers. So we're talking about technology now. Science and technology are two different things. Yes. Um, modern science is very practical. It uses new theories to acquire new capabilities by the development of new technologies. Yes. And uh, this, is, this is not automatically a characteristic of science. This, if, if you like, is... <coughs> this is practical science because practical science gets funding. There is pure science and pure research, and there's still a lot of it, um, but it's always more challenging to get funding from the politicians yeah. for pure science. That's right. And we actually talk, actually, this chapter is a fair bit about the intertwining of science with economics and yes. politics and religion and so forth. So we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail later, later on. Um, so rather than being a revolution of knowledge, the scientific revolution has actually been a revolution in ignorance. Yeah, Harari writes so nicely. He... He phrases, on head. he phrases things in a way which suddenly makes your head snap around and say, hey, that's not right. Yeah, that's it. That, he gives you the feeling that, hang on, that's the exact opposite of what I thought, yes. but I can't argue with you. You've actually, I think you're right. Yeah, and, and then he justifies it. Um, yeah. So the scientific revolution was kick-started after the eventual, eventual acknowledgement that existing systems of knowledge and, and our main existing systems of knowledge before the scientific revolution were religions, really. Yes. Christianity, Buddhism, and so forth. Uh, we sort of came to the uh, realisation eventually that these didn't have the answers to all of our questions. So before the scientific revolution and this new way of thinking that we've been doing for about 500 years, it had been accepted that wisdom had been laid down by the ancients. Yes. Who lived in a golden age and knew everything. Yeah. And if they didn't know it, it wasn't worth knowing. Exactly right. Moses knew it all. Yes, and you needed to accept what they said. You didn't question. So Aristotle thought that heavier objects fell uh, faster than um, lighter objects yep. because it was common sense. Like a cannonball is obviously going to fall faster than a feather. Yep. Um, and that was the prevailing wisdom for, uh, I don't know, 1,500 years or 1,200 yep. years. And it's like... It's utterly wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, 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 it seems like you couldn't really question the authorities back in the day. And your probably mindset wasn't to do so anyway. Uh, it, it was very much to, connected with the magical mindset. And you can still see it in Harry Potter. Mm. Um, you will notice in the whole of the Harry Potter series... Never watched a movie, never read a book. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I'll take your word for it. Anyway, but in the whole of the series, 
nobody invents a new spell. Yeah. Um, the magical mindset is that you draw all wisdom from the past. Yeah. Um, it's written in the stars, you know, all this sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so these, these um, established traditions, such as Christianity, Buddhism and so forth, they, they did acknowledge some ignorance, but only two special types of ignorance. So the first one they acknowledged was individual ignorance. So they were quite happy to accept that the, uh, you know, the farmer down the road didn't necessarily know everything about the meaning of life. Right. All he needed to do, if he had a question, was to go and ask his, um, somebody wiser. Yeah, Often exactly. the parish priest or it might yeah. have been his lord or whatever. His, his local imam or whatever yeah, it might yeah. be, yeah. So that was easy enough. And they also accepted that an entire tradition might be ignorant of some things, but none of them were important. That's right. If, if, if the wise guy said no, it was because it didn't matter. That's right. So if they didn't bother to tell us, then it's not worth knowing. If, if it was important, if it was important to know how to do cross-stitch cross crochet, mm. then God would have uh, included that in the Bible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to argue that the tradition did not know the answers to important questions was to be marginalised or and persecuted. Mm -hmm. And that happened a lot over the journey. Mm -hmm. Unless, with one exception. Indeed. Unless you started your own tradition, Hutto. So... Muhammad had the right idea. He said, ah, oh, listen, they've got it all a bit wrong. I'm going to start a whole new way of thinking. And uh, he managed to pull it off. Yeah, but uh, you could also get crucified going down that, that Oh, path, yeah, and so. plenty did. And plenty did, so, yeah. yeah. Or burnt at the stake or what have you. All that stuff. Um, Modern-day science is unique amongst all these traditions because it recognises its own ignorance regarding important questions. Yes. Um... So, for example, Charles Darwin never proclaimed to be the final prophet of biology right. in the same way that Muhammad claimed to be the final prophet of Allah. Yeah. Some theories are almost universally accepted as true. So, we're talking about ignorance, and that's true. That is the basis of the paradigm of science. But some theories are so well established that you, 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 know, you tend to think of them as fact. Yes. Uh, and so that happens, um, even though they're not really facts, um, but they're as good as facts. Um, and, and, and two of the examples of, of theories that really have no uh, serious um, debate in them, if you're a scientist, between scientists, is the plate tectonics theory, yep. apparently. And I know you can argue about this one, the theory of evolution. Yep. So as far as biologists are concerned, my understanding is that theory of evolution is pretty cut and dry and there's not really much controversy about no, it. No, I actually... But I know you're going to disagree. No, I agree. <laughs> okay. Um, Look, I'll just edit. You disagree and I'll just edit it out at the end. <laughs> plate tectonics is well established, not only because there is sound scientific evidence for it, but because it had a difficult birth, because it was strongly resisted at the start oh, okay. by other scientists. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, evolutionary theory also had to contend with opposition, mm. not so much from scientists, but also from many scientists. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the paleontologists, for example, said that the fossil record really didn't support what Darwin was saying. And you've got to bear in mind that evolutionary theory as it now stands is very different to what Darwin put forward. Yeah. We've now got you know, selfish genes and gen punctuated evolution and, and this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, the 
other things to bear in mind. I talked, I was on a board with one of the top um, biologists of Australia. And he said, look, there's no question that evolution happens, but there's anomalies all around the place. This is not a final busted theory. This is still a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, to, me, to me, a lot of the criticisms about evolution, they come from a, a religious yes. place. Um, and a lot of them are criticising science for the very nature of being science. Yes. Because, it, you know, it evolves, it changes. And they go, oh, how do they expect them to take it seriously when it's, you know, changes every 10 years? Well, yeah, that's science. <laughs> and that's the strength of science. Yes, exactly right. Um, unfortunately, that's a debate that's become ridiculously polarised. Mm. Um, but there is... But, you know, I know why it's polarised. So, so if a scientific theory comes through that doesn't threaten established beliefs in any way, all of a sudden it's magically non-controversial. That's the one. I mean, you know, this controversy doesn't come from the scientific theory. It comes from the invested beliefs in other things. The other thing, too, is that in China, for example, scientists are much in a much better position to challenge ideas about evolutionary theory and get funding for it for research and stuff like that. It, over in America, in the Western world, you try being a scientist who raises some questions about the current theory of evolution, you're likely to find yourself pretty much totally marginalised. In the scientific community? Yeah. You yeah. certainly wouldn't be in the um, evangelical community. Oh, you, you have the other problem there. You have a whole bunch of people who don't understand what you're saying, suggesting that you actually said something totally different. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so... So science has, I mean, one of the main thesis, theses of this book is that we are, that civilization is held together by fictitious social orders. And uh, science has played its role in, in holding the social order together. Yes. It's been quite useful for that. Um, so all, all modern attempts to hold the fictitious social order together have relied on two unscientific methods. Okay? Yeah. The first one is to declare a scientific theory to be a final and absolute truth. Yeah. And the Nazis were pretty good at that with yeah. their racial policies. And communists uh, obviously were like that with their socialist theories yes. as well. So they were almost religious, I suppose, in their unwillingness to, to kind of change what they believed. Absolutely, yes. Um, you know, Marxist <laughs> economics was hailed as the only way economics could work. Yeah, yeah. And the other way is to ignore science altogether and live with a non-scientific absolute truth in inverted commas. So liberal humanism actually meets that definition. So it uses a doctrine that is actually not corroborated by in, science. Indeed not. Even though I believe in it. Oh, my God. I believe in science and I believe in fictions as well. I don't, I've got no idea. <laughs> the, uh, I've been telling you I need a bigger brain. And, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this understanding that one's ignorant... I, Spend time in the library once starts to know how ignorant one really is. Well, you might, you might um, take some solace in the fact that that's the scientific way of thinking. Hello. Mm, the I first do. step. I do, I do. Admit your ignorance. Right yes. Um, of late, an almost religious belief in technology and scientific research has helped keep the social order together. Yes. Not necessarily for the right reasons. But... Yeah. I mean, I think a good example of, of blind faith in science is... 
people that aren't worried about human-induced climate change, a lot of them are saying, oh, they'll come up with some technological solution and, you know, it won't yes. cost us much. And, okay, I hope you're right, but, uh, you know, there's a bit of blind faith involved in that. We've yes. become used to this progress but, yeah, and solving we, almost every problem. Oh, we very much so. We've got whole generations who have known nothing else. Yeah. Um, well, including uh, ours. Yes. And yeah. the, the other problem is... This scientific dogma of belief in science yep. runs directly contrary to science itself, which is saying, yeah. you know, it's but it's pretty ignorance. hard. It's pretty hard not to do it. It's human nature. I mean, if if antibiotics cures your um, bronchitis, yeah. you know, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, you start to believe, don't you? I do. Yeah. But one of the problems I also have is <clears throat> we keep trotting out all these lists of scientific successes, and there are many, many scientific successes. You are. We have a whole civilization based upon the technology science has produced. Yeah. But I point out to people, yeah, but we've solved all the easy questions. Mm. Now, here are the questions we've been working on for two and a half thousand years and have made no pro progress on whatsoever. Yeah. Now, um, epistemology, uh, sleep, why do some people need more, so much sleep and some people need so little, yeah. problems of psychology, free will, you know, all these sort of things. What happens after we die? Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. yeah. All right, so science is based on collecting empirical data and putting it together with the help of mathematical tools. So knowledge slash wisdom used to be based on studying old traditions, but nowadays it is gained by recording new observations. Yeah and disregarding the old wisdom if necessary. Yes. Um, observations need to be connected into comprehensive theories. Where old traditions used to explain things via the use of stories and parables, science uh, explains things using mathematics. Yes. So the, the higher watermark of this scientific method being elegantly able to explain reality came about in 1687 with the great Sir Isaac Newton. He published the Philosoph... I hope... I don't know how to pronounce this correctly, but Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica. How did I go? Not bad. As far <laughs> as I know, my uh, mother tried to get some Latin pronunciations into me. And well, it's pretty much the same as English by the look of it, because that's, that's the Latin for the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Indeed. And uh, we usually it's referred to nowadays as a short title of Principia, which makes life much easier for us. Yes, it, it is. So um, it can persuasively be argued that this is the most important book in modern history, Hutto. Yes, it can. And I think I might even subscribe to that. Yes, same. So... This theory explained and predicted the movement of all bodies in the universe using three very simple mathematical laws. Yeah. So this is like the holy grail for scientists. Yes. Um, so the three laws are, one, an object either remains at rest or continues to move at a constant velocity unless act acted on by an external force. Yeah. No. Simple enough. So, so the, the prevailing wisdom was that the natural state for an object was to be at rest. Yes. And that came from Aristotle. Yes. But the, but the natural state for an object is not to be at rest, it's to be moving at a certain velocity, you know, whatever its initial velocity exactly. is. That's what it's... So Newton was already halfway to relativity with that statement, which is also interesting. Okay. Because um, uh, Newton's whole understanding is a relativistic universe. In yeah, so, so he's, he's taking motion into account. Yes. Whereas traditionally it would be a, st a static view of things. Yes. 
you know, so then, then asking a question like, why do the planets appear to move is a pretty tough question to answer in an old Aristotelian oh, uh, viewpoint. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one should point out that while that statement is simple, what he actually boiled it down to is a formula which is sigma, which is the sum of all forces equals zero. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, which is four, five symbols, um, which is, of course, beautifully simple, but yeah. it's also profoundly significant because that doesn't just apply to one object in motion. Yeah. It applies to the whole universe. He's saying the sum of all forces in the universe is nothing. Yeah. Um, this, this led to the idea that um, matter and energy are constant. Yeah. You can't lose energy from the universe or increase it or decrease it. It's absolutely fundamental to the whole of science, yeah. the, the laws of constancy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, elegant stuff. Mm. Now, as, as I've said several times, we all want simple answers to complex questions, you know, ten-word answers to complex questions. The reason Newton is hailed so as the God, that's right, is because he did it. Yeah, he did, you're right. Pretty smart for a virgin. No, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he's... I, I, I keep telling you it's your lifestyle that's the problem for your progress. But <laughs> you too. No, actually, actually, it's not. I should be a lot smarter than I am. Um, now, his second uh, mathematical law was, and you might be able to explain this better than I can, but force equals mass times acceleration. Absolutely. Can, do you want to? Can you explain that in? Yeah, in well, a sense what, what he's basically saying is that um, you uh, use your billiard cue to tap the Earth. It doesn't make the Earth move very far because the Earth's mass is very big. Mm. Um, so the Earth's the acceleration you've given to the Earth is tiny. Yeah. Um, you use your billiard cue to tap a billiard ball. The ball flies around the. Yeah. Table. So the force you put on the cue. Yeah. Um, you can calculate the mass and or the acceleration of the of the object if you get two of the three variables. That's correct. Yeah. Um, okay, that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to dealing with planets, um, you can now observe the orbit of the planet and deduce the mass of the planet. So. Yeah, okay. And his third principle is similar to what we are talking about with the Billy Kid. When one body exerts a force on a second body, the second body simultaneously exerts an equal and opposite force on the first body. Yep. And this is probably explaining why the total amount of force, once you take direction into account, in the universe is zero. That's right. Action and reaction are equal and opposite. Yep. And these, these, these laws worked like magic. Yeah. So everyone was mouth agape, couldn't believe it. Yep. Um, and Newton showed that the Book of Nature is written in the language of mathematics. And this is what I believe changed the entire world because humans started to go, oh, shit, we actually can understand the deeper secrets of the universe. And in my opinion, the Enlightenment, which came along in the 18th century after Newton, and we can thank the Enlightenment while we're living in a liberal democracy today, was essentially the humanity's response to the fact, oh, hang on, these physicists, they figured it all out. Yeah. You know, we should be able to figure out better principles for living in a, in a society as well. Yes. And it really kicked off the entire modern world. That's right. The, the whole idea that there are better ways and that we don't yet know them is a total turnaround in thinking. And it's worth bearing a couple of things in mind. 
of just how hard it is to change mindset, which is, for example, that Galileo had already done a lot of work on gravity, accepted the idea that things fall because of a force like gravity. But when it was proposed to him that the moon was therefore causing the Earth's tides, he couldn't accept it. Mm. It was a step too far for his brilliant mind. Yeah. Newton, even after he'd done this and other people were saying, look, he's shown how we can explain things using mathematics and forces, you know, natural forces, etc. He still returned to trying to find the layout of the old temple as the best guide to the layout of the heavens. Right. Um, he, although he was the one who'd shown this, he could not accept it in his own mind. Yeah, yeah. That probably goes to the, the power of being brainwashed as a kid into a certain type of belief. Well, yes, and you know, it, it's also been said that if Newton hadn't done all of his studies in alchemy, he probably couldn't even have come up with what he did regarding the planets. Um, mm. it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, Einstein, having come up with the theory of relativity, was still struggling with its implications, which he was for many years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this... this amazingly elegant solution in the field of physics and the motions of bodies hasn't worked as elegantly in some of the other fields such no. as psychology, economics and biology. Indeed. And I remember I, I did a first year psychology at university and I remember in the first lecture the professor saying, you know, we're a science, we still haven't, we still haven't found our Newton or our Einstein, we're still trying to establish ourselves as science. Yes. Um, and Harari sort of explains that by um, they're more complex, which is interesting. Because yes. some of them are man-made systems and they're, they're kind of more complex than the natural world. Well, this, this is part of what I too have been saying. We've had spectacular success in the so-called hard sciences, in yeah. physics and chemistry. Yeah. They are, the so-called hard sciences respond very well to the scientific method and mathematics. And mathematics, yeah. But they are, in fact, the easy sciences yeah. because they respond very well to the scientific method and mathematics. Yeah. Really easy since we've had this big paradigm shift, I would say. They weren't so easy a thousand years ago. Sure. But we've, we've kind of mastered them to well, some degree. Well, what I'm saying is they're largely mechanist, even with yeah. quantum statistical theory, yeah. they're mechanist. Whereas... Everything which involves biology, humanity, problems of economics. mindset, um, uh, economics is another. Yes, one. exactly. Placebo effect and stuff like this. This is not easy. Yeah, I suppose These the second are, order chaotic yes, systems. Yes, and as part, we spoke of, about last part of what I'm also saying is, it's a tragedy that we've got all our brilliant minds going into studying physics because we need them to study the hard sciences. Yeah, the, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, so. Scientists in these fields, such as psychology, economics, biology, they didn't give up on mathematics altogether. They're oh, no, still no. going. Um, but what what essentially needed to happen was statistics needed to be developed, yes. which is basically the mathematics of uncertain outcomes. Yes. <laughs> so you can get fairly good you can get fairly good outcomes and fairly accurate outcomes over a large sample size, but yeah. for each specific case, you're not really sure what it's Correct. going to do. Yes. Um, so this this kind of was revolutionised um, through life insurance. Yes, actually. So in Scotland in the eighteenth century, um, you couldn't tell who was going to die this year. Right. But if you looked at ten thousand people, you could say with accuracy how many people of that certain age would die that year. Yeah. And then you could uh, 
then you could allocate your insurance premiums and your payouts accordingly. Yep. Okay. Scottish Widows. Correct. The Scottish Widows Funds, which apparently still exists today. It's oh, yeah, really it does. Big, yeah, I hadn't heard of it, but uh, I don't know. If you've got I, it I think it's still one of the big three in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big one. Um, so I took the time to look up our odds of dying. You're on, you're on my odds of dying. Yeah. Now, these, these odds aren't actually... These odds... Are, these odds... Adding on to what I was just saying, they don't actually apply to you and me as individuals, no. but they apply to everybody in our age group in our country. And uh, you know, it's really accurate from that point of view. But then, so so I've got a 032 percent chance of dying this year, Hado, according right. to the actuarial tables. Right. And I was a bit sad about that until I saw that you've got a one point one five percent chance of dying. So you've got four times more chance of me than dying this year, Hado. I really appreciated you looking that up. I, I, <laughs> I thought I, you might. I suspect you failed to take your dissolute lifestyle into account. <laughs> I, who have never smoked, never got drank, exercised regularly, <laughs> then you come puffing in from the gym. Well, all right, that's good. <laughs> Besides which, of course, I know that I am immortal and blessed by God. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, so that's why... In this chart I looked up, it didn't say Matt's got a chance of 0.32% and Huddo's gone for 0.5%. But men of our age, in general, have indeed, that chance. Indeed, yeah. Look, I, I have noticed my life insurance premiums have been going up. <laughs> now, it turns out these actuarial tables, and Harari uh, makes this um, analogy, which I thought was a really good one. It turns out actuarial tables are much more prophet prophetic than even the best biblical prophets, Huddo. Indeed so, yes. I've, uh, I've got some doubts about biblical prophets. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, some of them are really good because there, there are a couple of books in the Old Testament, the later ones, I think Daniel, mm -hmm. that was written after the events oh, yes. had all taken place. Yes, yes. But they pretended that they wrote it before. Yes, yes. That, 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 <laughs> and they predicted everything that, perfectly. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a, a good way to predict stuff. It's a very reliable approach. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we've now got academics questioning whether the great prophet Moses even existed, which is a, a bit disturbing. Yeah, well, I mean, I probably question that myself, but you know, well, that's probably a, a discussion for another day. Indeed. We spent enough time on religion a couple of episodes ago. Um, so this type of statistical data and modelling was also used to fund the science of demography, which was developed by Thomas Maltus. Malthus? Yes, Malthus. Yes. Malthus, uh, who's a fairly famous. He was a theater, he was a cleric. That I found out from this. Yeah, book. That's, that's They're all clerics. These well, blokes. the clerics were uh, educated. Yes, they were educated, and they also maintained many of the repositories of wisdom and knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this science of demography was critical in the development of Darwin's thought. Yes. So statistics has revolutionised the, the modern world, really. Yes. Um, similar probabilistic models have become central in the fields of economic sociology, psychology, political science and other social sciences. And when you go to university, it's the bane of every psychology student that they have to study statistics in a fair bit of detail. They didn't sign up for that, Hutto. They signed no, up to learn about the brain. They didn't study... They didn't sign up for that. That's exactly maths. right. And uh, now, partially too, I think this is the problem of the hard sciences invade... The hard sciences with their wonderful success rates are basically saying you're not really a science because you can't do what we do. Yeah. And then the other sciences are sort of trying to say, yeah, we use mathematics too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't call yourself a science unless you do. And, and certain fields 
they're striving to become scientists and they are scientists. They use scientific methods, but they just haven't had the success. And that's not their fault. It's probably just more, the, more difficult the things to study. The problem is that the scientific method doesn't work as well yeah. in those fields. Yeah. And I actually think we pay too much attention to the scientific approach to yeah. things instead of developing some of the other possible tools. Yeah. Precisely because, well, they work so well with physics and chemistry. Yeah, it's pretty attractive. I mean, you can see the appeal. If we can, if we can come up with three equations that are going to explain all psychology to us, oh, I mean, who wouldn't want that? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but that was, in fact, the exception to the rule. Yeah. It's interesting that even this, this doubt now, this probability fuzziness, is starting to invade physics as yes. well because as we get into the realm of um, quantum mechanics, we start talking about probability clouds and yeah. and we'll, we'll we'll have a series of lectures on uh, podcasts, I should say, not lectures I, on on quantum stuff just, later on. And uh, uh, I uh, I'm no expert on it at this point, but uh, we'll get there. I just picked up the book Quantum Space from the library and. Um, Busy expanding my brain around that. Well, you're getting smarter than me as we're doing this. No, I think I've inspired you. No, you have inspired me, but I think my brain may actually just explode. So yeah, maybe you need a rest, <laughs> a little resties. Um, so universities in the Middle Ages used to be dominated by the study of theology, rhetoric, and grammar, mm-hmm. and nowadays you don't get a lot of that stuff. Um, you still study certain humanities and stuff, but uh, they've been largely replaced by mathematics and the sciences. Yes. So we have a lot of faith in science these days, Hutto. Yes, and, and that's the contradiction. We have a lot of faith in yeah, science. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We do. Um, I don't see... I get annoyed when I, when I see people criticising science on that front. I mean, uh, I don't think there's any problem. Well, no, there, there is a bit of a problem with having faith in science. I mean, you've still, it's still got to be good science. Yes. But, I mean, I'm not going to go and learn it. I'm not going to go and read every white paper and, no. uh, you know, understand the science behind it. So I'm, I, I have to, at some point, take the faith of a qualified person that they're telling the truth. Indeed. And so that's why you do um, double-blind testing and also you okay. get other people replicating results. I mean, they build a lot of this yes. safety into look, the, the method. I, I have heaps of time for science. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a best tool for investigating a whole bunch of important phenomena. Yeah. Um, what bothers me is that so many of the people who have faith in science don't understand the basis of science or their yeah. basis of their faith. Yeah. Um, but then I also find many religious people don't understand the basis of their faith either. And that, this is part of the whole epistemological knowledge, how do you know anything problem. And yeah. you're right, you cannot fact check everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is mathematical language is difficult for our minds to grasp. Oh, it is. <laughs> yes, and, sci- and scientific findings often contradict common sense. Oh, yes. So if you meet an old school, <laughs> my old man was a bit like this, he was pretty old school, and he'd go with common sense. So if some new thing came out that didn't make sense, he'd just go, oh, well, that's rubbish. Yeah. You know, which that would annoy me as well, because yes. clearly it's not rubbish. I mean, they've, they've made a hovercraft that's working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not really common sense. <laughs> well, uh, I, the first, first guy who presented his proposal to Napoleon for a steam-powered ship, which was a wooden ship, yeah. um, and Napoleon said, that's absurd. Forget mm. it. Yeah. You know? And this is Napoleon. It was, yeah. And know, that's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. This is well into the scientific revolution we're talking about yeah. here. 
And this is Napoleon, who was pretty foresighted on a number of things. Yeah. You suggest putting in a, a ship that burns fire on it, yeah. and he would never buy it. He wasn't a big um, technology man, apparently, even though his education, his background was in ballistics. Yeah. Um, he was more into um, strategy and logistics yes. and stuff like that. Um, so science still enjoyed, despite all this, the naysayers, science still enjoys tremendous prestige. Uh and the main reason being due to the immense powers it gives us, i.e. technology. Yes. So in 1620, uh, Francis Bacon was a, was a bit of a, a pioneer as well. He, he published a scientific manifesto titled The New Instrument. Yes. In which he argued that knowledge is power. So that got a few yes. king's ears pricking up. Um, a theory is not judged on whether or not it is true, but by how much it empowers us. Yeah, what a different mindset. Yeah. Um, and he was also one of the big pushers that, you know, mathematics is true and reliable um, and is a foundation for science because mm. it's totally independent. Everybody can verify it and all this sort of stuff. I've heard something similar in the realms of, like, self-help and psychology where um, people advise you don't... Don't believe your beliefs on the basis of whether they're true or false. Believe them on the basis of whether they're helpful to you or not. Yes. And that's really difficult for me because whether it's true or not is important to me. But the problem I have is deciding what's true. Yes. So I've always got that problem. Um, the relationship between science and technology is actually a very recent one. We tend to put them together in the same bucket, but it's yes. a fairly recent connection. And, and we rewrite history. We grab someone like Aristotle who clearly was using science and technology together and hold them up as um, an exemplar of the way things were. But in fact, it was the exception to the rule once yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Um, prior to 1500, they were totally separate fields. Bacon's connecting of the two was actually a very revolutionary idea. So until then, and when you, when you read your history, most guys that invented stuff were yeah. just guys. They yeah. weren't scientists. Yeah. Um, they were just usually intelligent laymen or guys that had, you know, been blacksmithing for 20 years and knew a bit about iron or whatever happened to be. Yeah. Um, so inventors usually weren't scientists and scientists didn't think about the practical application of their theory. So mm. now that's why you get back to, oh, they're clerics or they're, they're wealthy people because they've got the time. It's really their leisure. Yes. They just like doing it, you know. Um, now today it's a bit different because... Today's wars, for example, are primarily scientific endeavours. Yes. <laughs> uh, rather, we were just talking about Napoleon. He was all about logistics and strategy. Yes. And that, that stuff still matters, but it's yep. really about technology. And speak to, I suppose, the British. I mean, the British Empire was, was really based on a technological mismatch, more so than strategy and logistics. Um, the US Department of Defence is spending millions on nanotechnologies and robotics to help them fight their wars. Yeah. Um, Whereas the Roman army never had an R&D department. That's exactly right. And, you know, the whole, you know, getting back to the Harry Potter books once again, there is no research and development and magic going on. There is no department for research and development. The, the whole idea of developing new spells mm. is just not in the mindset. Mm. Um, this is where you've got this complete mismatch with a 20th century child um, doing magic while we've got all this technology going on. Yeah. And yet it does make you aware of just how contrasted the magical view of the universe is to the scientific view. Yeah. 
And, and that battle is still going on today because although we have this kind of faith in science, we actually have only a relatively small proportion of the population that does, practices or understands science. It's a bit like Christianity back in the Middle Ages. You only really had the clerics that really could read the book. Yes. And you had to take it on faith. Yes, mm. exactly. Good example. Yeah, it is a good example. So the more it gets different, the more it stays the same, Hutto. In many ways, that's true. And it def remember what Harari was saying about you need to look at the counterpoints and the example of the baron who goes to church in the morning and then... You know, um, the counterpoints are what are driving our society and you can see this very much in uh, America at present um, and your conflict between the religious Bible Belt and science and on such things as how you tackle COVID. Mm. It's, um, Whether you wear a mask or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it took... So gunpowder was invented 600 years before it was actually used as a, as a weapon. Yeah. Now, why is this? And it's basically for the reason that you were just talking about. It, it first appeared at a time when no ruler had the mindset that the new technology could save them. They, was, they were too used to living in a world where nothing really changed. That's right. And the only way you did... Yeah, progress wasn't a thing. The only way you get richer was to take someone else's yeah. stuff. And Roman army had no R&D department. And where the Roman army did make developments, they were very good at pinching ideas from other people. Yeah, the Mongols were good at that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was how... You know, and that is an approach to progress and a very useful Yeah, but it one. doesn't add to overall progress. That's correct. That, that's more an assimilation of, of, that, of progress. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So the Romans were great assimilators, but... Yeah, they were. Yeah. And most of their philosophy and religion was based on the Greeks anyway. I mean, I, I heard a lecturer once talk about Rome saying the Romans never thought of anything themselves. Um, now, that's probably not strictly true. I mean, they were certainly good engineers. But once again, you're talking about technology as opposed yeah. to science. Yes. Yeah. Um, science, military and industrial technology intertwined only with the advent of the capitalist system yes and the industrial revolution yes this relationship quickly transformed the world yes and harari's going to show us more of that and when we look at the ascent of money we'll get some more more look at that why yeah. was it europe came to dominate yeah I, I was sort of i was i was expecting to have to wait for that book to get more detail but I, I felt like what I learned in this chapter was, was a good overview, yeah. a good satellite view. Yeah. Um, so until the scientific revolution, people didn't believe in progress. The golden ages were all in the past and the world was stagnant, if not deteriorating. Mm. It was hubris to think that humans could greatly change their circumstances. And a good parable that explains that well is the, um, the Tower of Babel yeah. story where man's hubris led to punishment by God, if you like, because yeah. they were building the tower too tall. That's right. You... And uh, another one is Icarus, who decided to fly a bit too close to the sun, and he, he came undone. That's right. You know, dare, how dare you challenge the gods or the religious authorities? Don't go beyond human limitations. That's hubris, Hutto. This is right. And, you know, even in the uh, late 1800s, there were experts saying that, no, if a train went faster than 40 miles per hour, all the people on it would explode, and this sort of thing. <laughs> I'm glad that's not true. Um, so as science began to solve one uns or previously unsolvable problem after another, people started to think that hmm, maybe humankind can overcome every yeah. problem it faces. Uh, maybe poverty, sickness, wars, famine, old age, death itself 
can all be potentially overcome. Yep. And in large part, they have. It's unfortunate we're doing this now where we're, we're suffering from a, a global pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> if we'd done this last year, we would have said, oh, look, disease is a thing of the past. <laughs> <laughs> but not many people starve to death these days. And, and if you look at the famines over the last 100 years, they've usually been more for political reasons rather than a, well, rather than a just not enough food reason. This, of course, is our problem. We keep looking to technology to solve problems, which... The problem is actually human nature and politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, more people are starving today than any other time in history, but that's as a proportion of the overall global population. Yeah. It is far less. Yeah. Um, and, and there is enough food in the world to feed everybody there, adequately. There is. Which there wasn't in the past. Exactly. And look, we've had a cure for leprosy for yonks, but there's still people catching leprosy yeah. and not being cured for it in places like Nigeria. It's just a distribution of wealth problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if we take this to its logical conclusion, I know this is a topic you're interested in, can we ever overcome death using scientific methods, Hutto? Um, so a little bit about death. It's always been accepted as inevitable. Yeah, one of the great levellers. Yeah. Uh, and it's also not just one of the great levellers, but possibly the main source of meaning in life as well. So if we didn't die, um, we probably wouldn't be thinking so much about the meaning of life. True. Uh, there's a lovely Terry Pratchett one involving Discworld and vampires. Um, and the, uh, the most ancient vampire resurrects, you say, and, and comes back. And the rest of the vampire family are not very happy about it. <laughs> yeah, why, why is that? Well, great, 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 great grandfather is back <laughs> and he wants us to do things his way. <laughs> yeah, tell, him I, move, tell him to move further down the, the shoreline. When, when, when am I ever going to have my turn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. So most time has been spent trying to give meaning to death rather than trying to escape it altogether. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so this, this topic is addressed in our most ancient story uh, that's come down to us over, the, over history, and that's the Epic of Gilgamesh from mm -hmm. ancient Samaria, which is all about a, a powerful king. It's a long story. I won't go into the, the details. Long. <laughs> but essentially, the, the back part of it, he's basically trying to figure out how he can live forever. Because mm -hmm. his best friend dies, and he's heartbroken, and he's like, I'm not going to have this happen to me. And he spends... And he's, a, he's kind of like a selfish, kind of gluttonous sort of king and no one can beat him in a fight and so forth. He has this existential crisis. He runs around the world trying to figure out how to survive forever, fights on a few demons and does yeah. all that stuff that you do. And then finally comes to the conclusion that he's not able to escape death and he comes back and he's a content and he's a good king in his older years. Mm. Now, you know, this thing here in the 20th century, most popular book amongst young students was the Harry Potter series and the Deadly Hallows is going through exactly that, the three things which came out of three people, wizards trying to defeat death. And all the rest really? Of it. Yeah. So, um, so Harry Potter, in a sense, is like a modern Gilgamesh It type. is, but as I've also said, it's going. It's the magical world. Yeah. So it's thinking... Well, Gilgamesh lived in a magical world Yes, as well. exactly. It's yeah. thinking like Gilgamesh, but it's still very prevalent. Yeah. In the twenty first century, because we haven't escaped, we haven't solved death, so Correct. we're still in that same same Correct. problem, if you want to call it yeah. a problem. Um, modern scientists tend to see death as a technical problem, which means it potentially has a technical solution. Yes. 
So, for example, I mean, we see these things all the time. You can have put a, get a pacemaker put in your heart if it yeah. stops beating, or you can get a liver transplant if you want one. I've had if you're drinking heart, too much. I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't already had a heart up that um, fixed the mitral valve. Well, there you go. So you bloody your death was just a technical problem that we had to solve. Absolutely right. Um, you can have um, chemo, chemotherapy, which yeah. can cure cancer a lot of the times. So you can have antibiotics. Yeah. All these things. Our best minds. Our best minds are not trying to give meaning to death these days, but to hopefully defeat it entirely. So that's a pretty big shift. It's a huge shift. This would have been written off as nonsense. Yeah. 50 years ago. Yeah. 100 years ago, certainly. Um, The leading project of the scientific revolution is nothing short of trying to give humans the gift of eternal life. And we we can refer to it as the... uh, Harari refers to it as the Gilgamesh project. Right, which we may remember was the second tree in the Garden of Eden that you know, we took of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and God cast us out before we also took of the fruit of the tree of life which would give us immortality. Jeez, they went to the wrong tree first, didn't they? Uh, that's, well, I mean, I, I guess it begs the question, would you like to live forever with no knowledge or would you like to have a bunch of knowledge and die? Well, it's, it's not about knowledge it's about it's about naughty isn't it it's about knowledge of good and evil which is setting yourself up as setting the law that should come from god and Mm. you are saying no i decide what's sin and what's not yeah so you're setting yourself up as a god and you know we already recognize that in genetic engineering we are now playing god and there's lots of books about that issue yeah so if you think this goal of trying to, uh, trying to defeat death is inconceivable, um, the best cure for that is to think about how many inconceivable things we've actually achieved oh, yeah, <laughs> up absolutely. to this point in time. Yeah. Um, and Harari is the example of um, the vast reduction in deaths at childbirth yeah. and during childhood. He gives the example of Edward I of, of England, who had 16 kids. And that's... But it was his 16th who ended up being the only surviving male heir. All the yeah. rest died. Uh, all the boys died either at birth or in childhood. A couple of the women survived to adulthood, yeah. but, you know, you didn't have queens back then, so yeah. had to get down to Edward II to become the the, the heir. And he, he... These are actually the kings that are in the Braveheart movie, yeah. Edward the Longshanks and his son. Yeah. And the way they're portrayed in that uh, in that movie is a bit like how they are probably portrayed in history as well. So Edward II, I don't think, was a very successful well, king. You also have the problem of uh, you know when it comes to training up your son and heir, <laughs> you know better train up you know half a dozen of them, etc. And and we we saw this. But you can't have you can't have too many either because then they fight. Well, you, they do. You, an heir and a spare is the way yeah, to go. Absolutely. But it's hard hard to get them in the old days. Yeah, I mean, you look at James II and William of Orange. You know, you've got your your son-in-law fighting against his, yeah. his father. It's, uh, yeah. um, but the other issue is, yes. Once again, I thought Harari picked a perfect example because you know you're looking at the royal family, who were the best looked after, had the best yeah. physicians, all this sort of thing, yeah. the best nutrition yeah. and nourishment, and even they couldn't bloody survive. And even they couldn't survive. That's yeah. Right. yeah. So this it makes is, you realise how lucky we are today. It does, and it also makes you realise what population explosion happens when you've actually got yeah, when people are dying all yeah. the time in childbirth. Yeah. Um, all right, so that gets us to a break, I reckon, Hutto. We'll have a bit of a break and uh, we'll chew the fat for 10, 15 minutes and we'll uh, come back on the flop. 
I think that's an excellent idea because I've been listening to you for a long time. I don't know how your voice holds up. Oh, I love the sound of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll see you soon. Okay, so welcome back after uh, a 10-second break. Yes, 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, So we're just going to finish off this chapter and then, then we'll get to unanswerable questions and then we're done. So... The last little bit of this chapter is basically posing the question, does science and technology hold the answers to all of our problems, Hutto? And the uh, chapter heading, The Sugar Daddy of Science, is, uh, is, a, <laughs> is a good heading. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. I didn't really sort of, sort of think about that before. Um, so there's a couple of problems with science uh, as a means of solving all our problems, Hutto. Yeah. Not least of which being is very expensive. Oh, that Someone's little, got to pay. That little bugaboo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the last 500 years, governments, businesses and wealthy donors, well, don't have to be wealthy, I suppose, but donors have bequeathed a lot of money to science to help it achieve its wonders. Without the money, without the... Without the connection between science and economics, you wouldn't, we wouldn't have had this scientific revolution. We would not, no. Um, and this is very much why it happened in Europe, because they actually got that bunch together. They got their financial system yeah. sorted out. And yeah. again, we'll be seeing that in the ascent of money. Yep. So why did this money start to flow? Why did these people give this money to scientists? It wasn't an act of charity, hello. Indeed not. It, it was done because somebody believes they can achieve some political, economic or religious goal via the help of science. Yes. Um, For example, in the 16th century, a lot of money was spent in Europe on geographic discovery and knowledge. Yes. Because the Europeans wanted to go out and conquer the world. Indeed. Or at least least trade with it. Expansion of new frontiers. So they saw a return on investment. But they didn't spend anything on child psychology, hello, because they didn't care. That's, well... No money to be made from child psychology in the 16th century. That was the problem, yes. <laughs> uh, children were there to be exploited like anybody else. There's no profit in that. And, it, and by, uh, by contrast, in the 20th century, enormous sums were spent on the study of nuclear physics... Because mm-hmm. you can blow people up with nuclear physics, Hutto. It's a, it helps you more. You can also, of course, generate uh, enormous amounts of energy from it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but the main let's let's be honest. The main motivation was was as a weapon in the, well, in, the so, well, in the first so, half of the century. Oh yeah, very much so, and possibly still is. Um, but there hasn't been a lot spent on underwater archaeology, Hutto. No. Because how are we going to win a war by, you know, discovering the lost continent of Atlantis? I mean, I don't know. Exactly. The uh, Navy SEALs missed out on that one. (laughs) (laughs) So science is completely and irreversibly intertwined with political, economic and religious interests. Now, individual scientists can act out of pure intellectual curiosity. Yes. Which is really what a pure scientist should be doing. Indeed. But they've still got to get their funding. They've got to get their money. Always the economics problem. <laughs> so they don't get to dictate the scientific agenda, or very rarely. That's dictated to them by the money men. Yes. And then the scientists go off and do their, their science. Yes. So it doesn't set the priorities, but rather the priorities are set by political, economic yes. and religious agendas. And we can see a lot of cases of this. Um, funding for things like... Uh, Research into evolution has always struck problems for this reason. Yeah. Um, Because it it doesn't meet the religious agenda. Correct. And also, if you do have a 
idea on evolution which runs counter to the current model. You can get some funding for it in China where they don't see it as disestablishing anything. Yeah. Very hard to get any funding for it in America. Yeah. Um, whereas um, the other obvious example is the parapsychological research which happened in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Um, again, that was really being pushed by ideas of military benefit. You know, if you could have telepathy, you could even communicate with submarines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the science failed to make much progress on it. It didn't fit within the scientific paradigm very well. Right. They did a reasonably good job of establishing that, yes, there are phenomena there, yeah. but we can't wrap any science around it because yeah. science actually requires you to come up with a theory yeah, before yeah. you can test it. Yeah. Um, so that's funding for that stuff just, just about Because they weren't able to explore yeah. it. Now, there may be some stuff still going on under the guise of DARPA or whatever. Um, Men Who Stare at Sheep is a wonderful film if you get to see that. Uh, but generally, yeah, it's not, not much happening on the scientific agendas anymore yeah. because the funding isn't there. Yeah. Because the results weren't there. Yeah. To me, the outstanding example is, is the fact that the Americans landed on the moon in 1969. Yeah. Now, does anyone really think the Americans would have hit the moon by 1969 if they hadn't uh, had the fear of God put into them by the Russians dominating the space race uh, in the early part of the 60s? Exactly right. I mean, they might have taken another 15, 20 years to get there if they could have gone at their own pace. And also, that's why they haven't continued going there because... They've been there. there There wasn't an economic or military benefit to doing so. Yeah. Um, now we've just seen the Chinese be the first to land on the backside of the moon, which is very much a political statement as much as anything else. And just this week, this coming week, we're expecting two spaceships to both blast off for Mars, mm. one being uh, American and one being Chinese. Okay. What's well, interesting about the, the race to Mars is that the private sector is getting involved. Very much so, yes. Yeah, so obviously Elon Musk sees some kind of return on his investment for getting to Mars. Indeed, and so does Branson, so... Yeah, Branson, yeah, yeah. Okay, so imperialism and capitalism and their interaction with science has arguably been history's chief engine for the past 500 years. Yes. And the following chapters go into more detail of the relationship between imperialism and science, and also capitalism and science. That's yes. what we'll be covering in the next couple of couple of shows. So that gets us to the end of the chapter, Hutto. So before we get to our unanswerable questions, would you like to... Is there anything that you want to say about the chapter? No, in this particular instance, not. I think that's covered it well. It's another chapter filled with gold. and I, I, I think uh, probably the main thing out of it is he's really saying, look, science is... We think of science as having changed the world, but in a sense, science is the tool that other forces use to change the world. Science yes. in itself wouldn't have changed anything if it was just science. Well, science has to be taken up yeah. by others. It has to be paid for. Yes. And but it has to be paid for by somebody who's got money and power, if you like, and, and wants something. But then, again, we're also looking at the issue of ideas. Um, you know, we've said many times that philosophers don't seem to change the world much, except that 2,000 years on, you still know their ideas and they're still foundational to the way you think about yeah, life. Yeah. So, you know, 
Plato comes up with an idea of the soul, and we're still playing with it today. Yeah. See, someone like we spoke about Francis Bacon. I always get confused because there's a Roger Bacon. Yes, in the world. I get confused. But Francis Bacon was like crucial in because he, in a way, defined the the scientific method. Yes, and that's what we've been using for 500 years yeah. to make all these progresses. And we also made the comment, for example, that um, how realistic would it have been to suggest that you could challenge death or do heart surgery or stuff like this? Well. Of course, to Leonardo da Vinci, the answer is, yeah, of course he was thinking about that. Mm. He saw the body, the human being, as a physical machine. Mm. Um, and so the whole idea is, yes, we can fix machines. We can make machines. We can... Yeah. But he was getting funded by people as well, wasn't he? He was. But he was doing it with his art and, arts and crafts. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and interesting paintings of the Last Supper. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, so, would you like to get started on the unanswerable questions? Indeed, the yes, yes, the challenges. All right. So, my first question, we've, we've talked about a bit during the course of the chapter, but is religion critical of science for being ignorant? And if so, is this productive? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to talk about religion in yeah, general. Yeah, look, but, I, yeah. I probably could have worded it better. No, that, no, that's fine. That's probably as good as you can do. It gets... Gets the point. Is, reli- uh, yeah, is religion sometimes critical of science mm-hmm. of being ignorant? The answer is yes, it is. Um, one of the problems with religion and science when they get into debate, debates is they tend to be talking at cross purposes. Yeah. And one of the best examples I've heard of this is take the question, why is the kettle boiling? Yes. And you talk to a scientist and he says, well, we put heat into the kettle, which has caused the water molecules to expand and separate, which is causing it to steam, creating bubbles, etc. Yeah. kinetic theory of gases. And that's an explanation for why the water's boiling. Yeah. And you talk to the religious guy and he says, oh, yes, I flipped the switch to put it to make a cup of tea. Yes. Now, both of those are direct relevant answers to why the kettle is boiling. Yeah. But, you know... <laughs> Never the twain shall meet. They're yeah. not talking about the same thing in yeah. any way or context. Yeah. And so much of the debates and challenges between religion and science is along those lines. I think a lot of the problems they have is when religion tries to give answers to questions that are ultimately scientific. Yes. I.e. how the universe began, how the world began and so forth. Yes. Which when I think about it, I mean, Jesus wasn't going on about that stuff, was he? I mean, that's that, like, no. from a Judeo-Christian point of view, that's Old Testament stuff. And Jesus said, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Maybe yeah. you should have said render unto the scientists what is science. Well, there wasn't scientists much around yeah. those days. But yes, you're right. He yeah. probably would have taken that line. Yeah, I think he might have. I just thought of that then, actually. Right. I thought, yeah, it would have been, that'd be a nice quote to have in there. It would have saved a lot of problems. Um, the other thing is, you know, religion asks a question like, why are we here? Science says, um, that's not a question we worry about. Yeah, scientists is how are we here? Yes, that's right. Um, So, you know, science science isn't saying there may not be a reason why we're here. It's just saying, does there have to be a reason why we're here? Yeah, and the fact that science doesn't know all the answers, it gets in trouble from religion for that. So, you know, scientists don't know what caused the Big Bang, for example. And so, obviously, you get religious people saying, oh, well, talking about. Right. Now, I do agree, for example, that saying there was a singularity is really no more helpful than God created. Yeah. Um, but... I, I, yeah, I mean, I see your point, but to me, God 
is invented out of thin air to explain something. I mean, I, I could I could invent a flying spaghetti monster that created the universe, which is just as rational. Whereas singularity, not that I understand the ins and outs singularities, but to me, there's one degree of separation less from reality than if you invent a being that's now made. Well, okay, there is evidence for the singularity. I mean, the idea is we have a, a universe which is big and which is apparently expanding. It certainly looks that way due to redshift and things like that. Yeah. Now, if it's bigger today than it was yesterday... and It must have started somewhere. Exactly. So you can take it back and track it smaller and smaller, yeah. and you do that at present, it looks like it's about 14.8 billion years or something. Yeah, what is it? 13.8? 13.8. 13 13 yeah. But you get to... Well, again, they've got inflation problems, but... Getting back, so you can clearly bring it back to a point where once it was very small and then even smaller and then it comes back to zero. Yeah. And you can't go back beyond that. You no. can't say, and then it it inhabited negative space or something. So yeah. you've got the problem. So it's perfectly rational, logical, and yes, you've got evidence to support the idea it came from a singularity. And the singularity basically means this is the point at which the trend stops and we don't know what happened before or after. Um, so it's rational, but at the same but time, but at the same time, it's really not more helpful than there was a god who invented. Yeah. There was mathematics. You know where does mathematics come from, and all this sort of yeah. question. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's productive. I think it's sometimes productive to point out the limitations of science, but I don't think it's useful to criticise science for having limitations. Or for admitting ignorance. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's like, it's like criticising basketball for having a ball. Yes. I mean, it's, it's the fundamental nature of the discipline. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's an unfair sport because it favours tall people. Um, th yeah. This is absurd. Yeah, yeah. The, I commend science for recognising ignorance. The only time I have a problem is when scientists are trying to deny that yeah. and say, we know. We know. And yeah. that's, that's where I think the psychology comes into it. It's like, look, this is so well established that I've sort of got to the point in my own head where I know. So, so for example, I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning. Right. But yeah, I really can't prove that. In a sense, I don't know it. So yeah. that's a human limitation where we say we yes. know when... We as good as know something. Yeah, and we, it, in a sense, we probably never really know anything. We constantly get back to this problem of epistemology. What does it even mean to say you yeah, know something? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and the fact is that neither science, philosophy, nor religion has managed to answer this question. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're tough questions. Um, all right, so I'm going to get to the second question now. Who's the greatest scientist of all time? Yeah, okay, this is a great one and depends on how you measure science. I mean, clearly one would put Newton up there, clearly one would have to put Einstein up there. Um, and I got... I've got a top two. Yeah, I've got a measure of Einstein's importance. Um, the question was asked, you know, who was more important, Newton or Einstein? Yeah, well, yeah. Newton, Principia, basically kicked off the whole idea of science. Yeah, I believe he kicked off the modern world. So I I think Einstein was just as smart as Newton. I'm not going to say Einstein was smarter because I think Newton was bloody smart and Einstein was bloody smart. I'm going to give yeah. him a draw on that. Yeah. 
But I, I feel like Newton might have affected history more to this point in time. Okay, now I agree with that. The plant answer which was made by a scientist was when we were studying physics, we covered everything in that was known to about 1900 in one term. Yeah. And everything else we did in the rest of our course was the stuff which came since. That's which the hard is, stuff too. Which, yeah, which is... I did, I did uh, physics in my last year of high school. And uh, yeah, once you're saying into fission and fusion and the quantum and all that, so that's going to be tricky. Yeah. Whereas F equals MA was nice and easy, Hado. I like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's a bit like Euclidean geometry versus topology. And yeah, so. yeah. Now, the, the other thing is you have to remember that Einstein while he's known for specific relativity and general relativity and the theory of equivalence, and these are massively important theories, which we're still doing work around today and will continue to do. He didn't get a Nobel Prize for that, mainly for political reasons going on with Germany. He was given his Nobel Prize for his thing on... The photoelectric effect, wasn't it? Yes, quanta emission. He was also a founding father of quantum mechanics, the other great science of the 20th century. But he didn't accept some fundamental uh, theses of quantum mechanics. Like he said that God doesn't play dice. Yes. Because quantum uh, mechanics is based around a probability cloud. That's correct, but in fact... And Einstein had a bit of trouble with that. He He did. He He wanted a deterministic universe like Newton. He did. And this is what I was saying earlier about even where he's put these theories forward, he's still struggling with the effects, just as Newton yeah, could not accept. You know, He was still looking for other answers for the layout of yeah, the heavens. Yeah. Um, so there was a very good description of Newton um, in a book we may get onto, Ideas, A History from Fire to Freud by Peter Watson. And in it he says... Newton is still known to us first and foremost as the man who conceived the modern notion of the universe as held together by gravity. But in the decades since Keynes spoke to the Royal Society, a second and very different Newton has emerged. A man who spent years in the shadowy world of alchemy, in the occult search for the philosopher's stone, Mm. who studied the chronology of the Bible because he believed it would help predict the apocalypse that was to come. He was a near mystic, fascinated by Rosicrucianism, astrology, and numerology. A man of his time. Well, precisely what he's saying is that Newton is the paradox. He was, yes, perhaps the first of the great scientists, but he was the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, the last great mind who looked on the visible and intellectual world with the same eyes as those who began to build our intellectual inheritance less than 10,000 years ago. Yeah. And that's the point of the people who change change our perspective. I mean, Darwin struggled with what he came with. Well, he's my number two. So my answer to the question, I'm, I'm giving it to Newton, and I've got Darwin at two. Because I think these two guys changed our view of reality more than anybody else. I think that's a reasonable argument. I I hate to have to agree with you. Um, I think... And I don't understand Einstein's theories, so I devalue him. Right. Okay. (laughs) Well, 
<laughs> but the other thing too, yeah, yes, standing on the shoulders of giants oh, and all sure. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I do think that Newton and Darwin have had the biggest impact on the way we think about life. But I would have to say that it is Einstein and quantum mechanics which has had a far bigger impact on the life we currently live. All these techno gadgets we run around with now mm. are largely based on that. For example, the GPS the GCS, yeah. um, only works because we now understand relativity. Yeah, yeah. So who are you saying? What's your answer? Um, I'm going to allow your answer to stand. Okay. Um, well, I'll give you half a mark then. <laughs> For lack of originality. Okay. So next question. If you could go back to 1500, what weapons would you take back with you to conquer all of Europe? I was going to say the whole world, but I thought, ah, nah, just, just, we'll just do Europe because the whole world's a bit too big. Okay. Well, I found this an interesting question. I'm also left wondering what you mean by weapon. Um, oh, well, it doesn't have to be weapons, really, but if you, if you were to go yeah, back now yeah. and take over Europe, what yeah. would you need to bring with you? Well, I'd like to take uh, you know, the Nimitz, the biggest American aircraft carrier that's got most of the world I need to... What to about a big job. bloody um, battleship, you know, big no, iron... No, no, no. no. Um, I mean, Jeez, the, you could go and bomb every city and no, no, they'd surrender no, within uh, a day. A, a battleship can't go on land for a start, it's a problem. But... The point you problem you have with taking over Europe is look, we can brush aside their weaponry dead easy in, in no time at all, but boots on the ground, it's very hard to control territory without infantry. I just say, listen, I've got a nuke under the Eiffel Tower, and if you don't do what I say, I'm going to explode. Yeah, well, look, North Korea. Don't need boots on the ground for that. North Korea is trying that approach at present. Not um, that there was an Eiffel Tower in 1500. <laughs> But yet, you know, you're, you're getting back to um, the state the, um, that gave us the word for assassins because, yes, they were able to bring down the top people of... So you'd so you, so you take some yeah, aircraft carrier or something yeah, and you'd obviously take some men as well. Yeah, How I, many men would you need? Well, I need the Marines. Right? I mean, if you're trying to take over Europe, you know, it's not a couple of hundred. You need boots on the ground is the problem. You need those divisions of... So you might need a million. Well, probably not that many, but I'd probably need 10,000 just to have enough. For All right, so uh, 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 what is, an aircraft carrier, 10,000 Marines, a couple of tanks. You could be the new Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be no problem. Well, Napoleon did in 1800 with a lot less than that. Oh, heck, look, a, a few, few machine guns and a couple of helicopters and stuff like that. <laughs> look, the moment the Europeans tried to bring an army together, yeah, we could blow them away in no time. Yeah. But just trying to make people do what you say everywhere over Europe is a more challenging task. Yeah. Okay, so no points for that. So, <laughs> would you like to live forever? I want to rename your unanswerable <laughs> questions to questions. questions I can't get points for. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> okay. What would it be like to live forever? Well, would you like to live forever? No, I wouldn't. Absolutely not. Um, oh, you wouldn't? Good heaven, no. Oh, jeez, I thought I, you struck me as a guy I'd love to be a brain in a bat. Um, With a couple of tentacle arms. The human being is not designed to live forever. We've got the brain ages, the chemistry changes, you know, the, the useful ex joy at birthday parties and things evaporates. I mean, I've already seen so many Olympic Games, I'm bored with them. Um, and they only roll around every four years. Every um, five years now. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so, no, look, the concept of living 
a long time. A thousand years, maybe. Um, but, you know, you're starting to talk about, would I like to live through 500 billion years? Yeah. Good grief. No, I don't want to watch... Um, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't like to watch the Andromeda galaxy pass through our galaxy over the space of a couple of billion years. Jeez, no. That'd be some pretty, pretty night lights, huh? Well, it would be wonderful if we could boil it down to perhaps a half-hour documentary. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to watch it and mould over millions of years. I do not, no. Yeah. Um, so I would need a different mind and brain structure to be looking yeah, at. Yeah, but I tend to agree with you. I don't want to live forever. Um, I just don't want to die. Ah, no, that, that's a totally different story. And well, it's a different mind. It's the same thing, but it's a completely different way of looking at it. It, it is. And in fact, many of the things related to the idea of the soul and stuff like this is not about, I want to live in heaven forever. It's about, I don't want to die. Yeah, no, you're right. You are right. I mean, we have a fear of death, and I think that's, I think that's natural. Yes. Um, Creatures that have a fear of death tend to live longer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, question, next, question number five. Will the Gilgamesh project? Oh, is that a name that Harari just made up, or is that something that? No, there is a Gilgamesh. Okay. Yeah. So, will the Gilgamesh project, i.e., the quest for eternal life, succeed? Um, again, that word "eternal" is is a bugbear because eventually the universe is probably going to die. Well, he he, he he refers to it as amortal. Yes. So you can still get hit by a bus yes. and die, but you're not going to die exactly. from any natural causes. Now, if you're talking about a longevity where you live for a thousand years, the answer is I see no reason why that would not succeed. But but then the, the thing about that then is if you live for a thousand, wouldn't you then want to go for two thousand? I suspect that you'll go screaming insane at about four hundred years of the way things. Well, I've done that already. Um, <laughs> but okay, first of all. To do that, you'd have to redesign the human genome, um, which we will be capable of doing by 2100. But you're not actually talking about Homo sapiens anymore. Couldn't we just have artificial everything except for our brain? Well, that's another thing, is that it may be easier to put the mind, if we ever work out what that is, into a machine, which is a whole other way. That to me seems... Well, that's tough because there's a lot of links. Yes. But to me, to me, a an artificial body kind of will live forever. So it almost feels like if you can somehow put a brain inside an artificial body, then you can probably live a pretty long time. Well, we'll tackle some of this when we get onto looking at uh, theory of mind and yeah. consciousness. Um, but the answer at this stage is uh, living a thousand years with a redesigned genome. Yes, that's totally viable. Yeah, so you're expecting that to happen. Yeah. Um, you're a bit more doubtful about living forever. Eternity is billions and billions and billions of years. Yeah. And who, who and would want the universe to... is going to end eventually. Exactly, yeah. Who was the most important person of the 20th century, Hello. Um This is a really interesting question, and you could put a lot of things together. Became very close to being Adolf Hitler. Yes. Um, he won time, uh, Times Man of the Year two years in a row. He did, yes, um, which is equally terrifying about what constitutes a Man of the Year. Oh, Stalin got it, you know, like, you know, it, it's not about being a good person, it's about, it's about your impact on the world. Yeah. Now, I would say that Gorbachev has to be a front-runner here. I mean, yeah. he basically wound down the Soviet Union and empire 
without a major war. Yeah. That was a phenomenal achievement. Yeah. Um, then you've got your technologists, you know, your Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, his internet and the World Wide Web, Google algorithms. If you want to look at a more knowledge-based scientific viewpoint, I could throw in Wikipedia. Yeah. And this has changed so much in so many ways. Yep. Um, we can look at economics. You've got people like Friedman and John Maynard Keynes. Who, Keynes. Keynes, who changed things top to bottom. Yep. Or then you can talk about people like Einstein, Niels Bohr, Niels Bohr etc. Et um, so there's many different ways of looking at it. Um, I'm going to let you have your thunder, because I know what you're going to say, but I actually agree with it. So um, Time magazine did um, Person of the Century in the year 2000, yep. and they had a lot of nominations. They got it down to three finalists, and their three finalists were Franklin... Delano Roosevelt. Yeah. And, and and really these people were really more symbols of the major changes that had happened in the century as opposed to being necessarily the greatest individual. Yeah. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt was symbolizing the spread of liberal democracy, which was really which is now well, we had the end of history about 10 or 15 years ago, which is now the predominant form of government in the world, or certainly was looking like that in the year 2000. In the year 2000. So Franklin was. Delano Roosevelt was probably, you know, a, a really good figurehead for that. Yeah. Then the second nomination was Gandhi, and Gandhi was about a couple of things. One was about independence, yes. you know, nationalism. Yeah, the but word. the second one was about a pacifist movement. So they were using Gandhi as a symbol for guys like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and yes. these sorts of blokes, which yes. was, a, you know, a big thing in the 20th century. Yes. And the third one they used, who was to symbolise scientific and technological pro progress of the century, was Albert Einstein. Yeah. So they were the three finalists. So I've given you some big clues there. Who do you think won out of those three? Well, we always have to remember that in these sort of things, you're talking about popular votes and popular equivalents. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it was a popular vote. I think, no, they chose They chose. Okay, right. They might have gone to a vote to get nominations, but, you know, the nominations yeah. are nothing. Um, well, the majority usually get things wrong, um, but nevertheless, in this case, there's some seems to be some sort of regulatory thing going around. It is there's a very reasonable candidates for the reasons. So who you said they chose? Oh, I think they probably chose Einstein. They actually. did indeed, and the reason they chose Einstein was because, in their opinion, the, the scientific and technological progress of the 20th century was the defining feature of that century, and I agree, I agree with them. I don't think you can argue about that. Now, Einstein wasn't responsible yeah. for all of that, but he was a good figurehead. In, in fact, it's it's been one of my complaints about the book of Revelation as being a supposedly prophetic book about these times, that it doesn't talk about technology. And if there's one thing the 20th century clearly was, it was a technological revolution. Yeah. No, you don't need those biblical prophecies, mate. You just need a good... Um actuarial, uh, mathematical guy. Well, you could do that, but it's always easier to write in hindsight. Yeah, it's, it's easier to write in stories as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than mathematics. <laughs> so do I get any points? No, nah, you've waffled around the question like you always do. You get zero. <laughs> I'll give myself one, though, because I answered it perfectly. <laughs> could... Now, my last question is, could science possibly be the answer to all of our problems? Ah, what a lovely question. Um, the answer is no. Um... There is a somewhat popular idea in the zeitgeist that science is pushing forward our field of knowledge more and more. Mm. And so you can look at 
a set of all there is to be known and a set of how much we now know. And yes, science has made the set of what we now know bigger and bigger and bigger and is gradually consuming all of the set of all there is to know. Yeah. I would suggest it's actually quite different. Mm. I would suggest that the set of all that is can be known is really big. Mm. The set of what we know is still quite small. Yeah. And the set of what can be discovered by the scientific method is larger than the set of what we know, but still a lot smaller than the set of yeah. what there is to be known. Yeah. Um, so I don't think science can answer all of that question. I'll accept that answer because I don't know any better, but I expect when we get into a science book later on and we start talking about the philosophy of science and stuff, which I'm sure is in our future, it is. that I'll be able to give a, a better answer. Well, maybe not a better answer, but you know, I'll be able to give a good answer to that. Well, I am happy to see that you have finally embraced the idea of your own ignorance. <laughs> well, I'm a scientist now, aren't I? Exactly so. so. So I too will give you... If it's good point. enough for Newton and Einstein, it's probably good enough for me. I too will give you a point for that answer. <laughs> you don't get to give out points, all right? All right, so out of those seven questions, I'm going to give you the area of a circle. I'm going to give you pi r squared. Cool. Well, so you uh, can you can make that as big as you like because you can just use whatever number you want for R. Absolutely. Uh, my field of influence has obviously expanded. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have come to the end of another riveting program. Huh? We have indeed, and so we wait for the flip-flop. Yes, so um, I'll see you on the other side. Uh, elbow bump. All righty. <laughs>